a lot of foreigners try to be too Japanese, but in reality, you know, Japan is really opening up, right? Especially the last few years, rather than trying to adapt fully to like being Japanese, how do you leverage your own culture and how do you bring the knowledge there? And then sort of mix it in while being culturally sensitive and, and then bring some sort of unique perspective. That way, I think it's a lot more sustainable. But if you take that mindset, then you're probably going to be a lot more relaxed and also not totally lose your sense of self being in a different culture. Konnichiwa, minasan. Business Success Japan no podcast e yokoso. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Buchelman. My main goal here is to create an easily accessible resource for those who want to develop Japan specific communication skills, especially in business. While I don't promise to make you fluent in Japanese, I hope that you will walk away from each episode with a skill, piece of information, or shift in mindset that will help you be more effective in your interactions with Japanese business people. Just a quick reminder to please rate and review the podcast if you enjoy it. It goes a long way to helping others find the podcast and learn more, and it also helps me keep going as an independent creator. So, thanks in advance. In today's episode, I chat with Misha Yurchenko, founder of the global coaching startup platform, Keras. He was previously based in Tokyo, where he worked for several years as a recruiter, helping tech companies like Facebook, Netflix, and Amazon hire top talent. But you'll hear more about his story and plans for the future in the interview, so be sure to stick around to hear that. Before getting into the episode, let's go over a little bit of Japanese. In the previous episode with Michael, we learned the word sarariman. Sa, da, di, i, ma, n. Sarariman. It's more or less just the Japanese equivalent of the English word salaryman, but be sure to check out the previous episode to hear a bit more about its usage and its place in Japanese culture. This week, I actually want to take a minute to officially teach another concept that came up in the previous episode. Tanshin funin. Ta, n, shi, n, fu, ni, n. Tanshin funin. Tanshin funin refers to the common practice at Japanese companies of sending employees to other locations across Japan or the world for months or even years at a time, typically without their families. While this could happen in any country to an extent, it's extremely common in Japan and it really isn't considered optional when a company offers the assignment to an employee. Again, be sure to listen to Michael's interview to learn a bit more about this practice. But without any further delay, let's get into today's interview. My name is Misha, and I am the founder of a career coaching platform called Keras. I'm also a blogger and a writer. I have lived in Japan for several years. Working as a tech recruiter, helping companies like Amazon, Facebook, and Netflix hire in Japan. And then I stayed there for a while, traveled around, sort of used it as my base, and, and built out a little freelancing business before moving to the Netherlands. Now I find myself in the Netherlands,、uh, but I am probably coming back to Japan very soon. So that's a, a very short、uh, introduction. Yeah, awesome. When you say coming back to Japan, do you mean short term or are you hoping to move back to Japan? Well, we'll see how it goes.、Uh, I think that it's at least for three to five years. Yeah. This is sort of the plan. So,、uh, and then maybe go to the US or somewhere else afterwards. But it was nice to get out of Japan for a bit just to see what else is out there. Because I essentially started my career in Tokyo right after college. 
And I jumped right into a recruitment firm, which was an amazing experience. And I highly recommend anyone that is mildly interested in sales or marketing to consider a recruitment career in Japan for many reasons. I mean, one is you build a network. Two is you get to meet lots of different companies and Japanese people as well that are international. Um, you get sales experience, you get sort of entrepreneurial experience, and you can brush up on your Japanese as well, depending on the type of clients you're working with. So it's, it's also quite lucrative, like you can make a bit of money. So definitely an exciting option for some people. Mm-hmm. Definitely a good option if you are not completely sold on the idea of going to teach English in Japan, or if you think that you'll need a little bit higher of a salary to make things work in Japan. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like English teaching. So some people really don't want to go the English teaching route because they think it will pigeonhole them or there's not really any career progression. And I think in some cases there, that could be true. But then I also... You know, I've, I've met so many people in Japan through recruitment and over the years who are entrepreneurs, who work in finance, who work in travel, who work in tech companies. And I would say more than half of them actually started out as JET teachers. So it's not that English teaching pigeonholes you. It's probably more like your personality and your drive and your willingness to achieve certain goals is probably more correlated to whether or not you're going to be successful in Japan rather than, oh, did I teach English or not? Because you can meet a lot of people, you can learn a lot teaching English and you can still save money because unless you're going out every night or something. So yeah. uh, I'm a little bit biased, but if people are thinking about teaching English in Japan and they are concerned about that, I don't think that they should be as well because What's nice about teaching English in Japan is a lot of times you have quite a bit of free time. Yeah. So you can definitely leverage that to your advantage, even if you end up with a company like Interact that's notorious for having less than ideal working situations, you have a massive amount of free time. So if you're somebody Mm. who wants to hustle to make things happen, it's actually a really good option. So I recommend it. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing now? Sure, sure. So well, there, there's a couple of things, right? So, so one is Japan-related and, and, and one is not Japan-related. So Japan-related, I actually wrote, a, wrote and published a book quite recently, uh, which took me quite a long time to write. So, so the story is that I was in Thailand, still based in Japan, but, but doing some soul-searching and traveling around Asia. I was in, in Thailand, and then I, I was doing a, a little um, water fast. So I wasn't, I wasn't eating for five days and sort of experimenting with, with different things. And during this water fast, I sort of you know, came up with all these different ideas. And one of the ideas was, hey, why don't I interview all the people that I've met in Japan who have influenced me and sort of just like record what I learned. And that was really the, the spark, right? It was, it was that, that, that five-day retreat. And I just wrote down all the people I wanted to interview and all the questions I wanted to ask them, like, you know, can you get a non-English teaching job or, you know, how do you get a, a business manager visa or how do you learn Japanese? Like, what's the best way to do that? So all these sort of questions I wish I would have had the answer to before moving to Japan, I, I, I sort of went out and asked these people. And from, at, from, from that point, it took like three or maybe four years to actually get the book published just because I was pretty slow. But um, 
but yeah, so, so that, that's, that's the Japan side. When I was there, I published this book. The non-Japan side is I'm running a career coaching platform, basically connecting people that are looking for jobs with career coaches uh, to, to help them with their resumes and interviews and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's awesome. So we'll go back to the career coaching side of things a little bit later, but can you tell us a little bit more about why you decided to write this book? I mean, it's fair that oh, it you took have, you so awesome. long. It's fair <laughs> that it took you so long because it is quite thick. <laughs> so, it's a doorstopper for sure. Yeah, it's over 500 pages, but it's 500 pages well spent if anybody's looking for book recommendations. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, I, I think I've, I've written a few other books and, and ebooks as well. And and really the driver for me is, is this feeling of like, do I have some, some unique perspective or do I have something different to say that I feel hasn't been said, right? And, and, and so like a really, like one of my first books that I wrote, really short ebook was about how to get a job at Amazon. And like really from the perspective of a recruiter myself, and I worked with Amazon and I helped lots of people find jobs there. So I, I, I couldn't really find a resource on Amazon where you could learn how to get a job at Amazon. So I just, I just wrote that and it took me like maybe three weeks of, of writing and, and, and that did well. And, and so it's a similar feeling of like, there are guides out there for traveling in Japan, maybe eating in Japan. Um, there's some guides on teaching English in Japan, but there wasn't really anything where you interview this sort of large swath of people who've been in tech or who've been in uh, entertainment and who've been English teachers and sort of combine their stories in one place. And so, so that's, that's sort of why I felt it needed to be written. And it aligns very strongly with kind of the mission of my own podcast. So I definitely appreciate putting in the work to make these sorts of things accessible to people in a high sure. quality way. There's a lot of clickbaity stuff out there. There's a lot of yeah. things that are questionable quality, but getting mm. kind of one-stop shops that are reliable is definitely very valuable for people. Yeah, and if you, if you want to interview any of the people in the book, you can, I mean, I don't have a podcast and I, I don't intend on creating a podcast anytime soon because I know it's a full-time job. So if you want to interview anyone in the book, just let me know and I'll, I'll introduce you. Awesome, thanks. Yeah, there's a lot of awesome people in here. So I hope that I can get some of them on. So then in your own experience and also mm -hmm. what you've learned writing the book, I guess, what would you say are the most common struggles that foreigners will face if they go to Japan to live and work? Yeah, so it, of course, depends on what they're coming with initially, right? If, if they have work experience and they have, you know, some business experience, they're a little more mature when it comes to their career, then, yeah, it might be easier in some ways to get a job because they have that, that to sort of fall back on. Uh, for, for a new grad that has, you know, maybe only studied in J Japan for three or six months, studied abroad, there, there's, there's obviously a lot of cultural and business challenges to overcome and that sort of thing. But one of the themes that came up in the book multiple times, and I don't know if you noticed this while, while you were reading it, uh, but at least five or six people have said this, where a lot of foreigners try to be too Japanese, Right. And, and, and so there's this it's not even about like perfecting the language, because I think that's that's very, very hard to do. But it's this idea of, you know, how do I make sure I I know exactly what to do in all these different sort of situations, whether it's trading my business card or running a meeting 
or all these things. And I think there's definitely a foundational like sort of base level of knowledge you should have uh, to be culturally sensitive. You don't want to just be you know, bashing doors down and being really loud and obnoxious, like no one's going to talk to you. But there's also a lot of people who kind of put this veil up and they're like, hey, like Japan is so difficult to understand. And there's all these sort of cultural intricacies. But in reality, you know, Japan is really opening up, right? Especially the last few years, like they want foreigners to come to come in and they're interested to hear from a, a different perspective. And so rather than trying to adapt fully to like being Japanese, it's more about how do you leverage, how do, how do you leverage your own culture, whether that's the US or a different, different country and how do you bring the knowledge there and then sort of mix it in while be, by being culturally sensitive you know, and, and then bring some sort of unique perspective. That way, I think it's a lot more sustainable and you don't have to sort of abide by all the Japanese rules that a Japanese person might have to uphold in your situation. So that should sort of give you a, a breath of fresh air. It's like, oh, hey, like, I, d- I don't have to do all this stuff that Japanese people do. Like I can, yeah, I can sort of be myself in a way. And of course, in certain situations, I have to adapt. So I think if you take that mindset, sorry, this is a really long answer, but if you take that mindset, then you're probably going to be a lot more relaxed and also not totally lose your sense of self being in a different culture. Yeah, definitely. It's a bit of, well, not a bit, it's definitely a dance and a sense of balance that you have to develop over Mm. time. But it's also a theme that's come up a lot on this podcast. And the way I try to articulate is if you try to play the the game, quote unquote, in Japan, you will lose because the game wasn't made for you. You can't out Japanese a Japanese person, but you have those unique aspects of your own culture. You have unique leverage as a foreigner Mm -hmm. in the country. So be aware of that. Don't burn yourself out trying to become something you're not. Adapt, but still do what you can to be unique to be true to yourself. Cause yeah, you probably will burn out if you try to make yourself into a Japanese person and you won't be any better off for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of people I interviewed in the book who they may be entrepreneurs now, or maybe they're working in, in some, some larger tech companies in Japan, but their roles are also either global or they're focused on the gaijin market in Japan. And so they've put themselves in a position where they don't necessarily have to deal with all the kind of bureaucracy and, and yeah, sort, sort of just focusing on the Japanese market, but they position themselves a little bit more globally and a little, little bit more in a Western way. So you can also do that. So shifting gears a little bit, something I noticed on your LinkedIn when I was looking through it is <laughs> that you talked a lot about experiencing severe burnout. Could you tell us a little bit about maybe what caused that and what you think could be done to prevent it in people, especially entrepreneurs. Yeah, it was a real bummer to have that happen. (laughs) Uh, It was not fun. So I am like many people, like I, I enjoy what I do. I enjoy writing. I enjoy solving problems and trying to start businesses and that sort of thing. And, and so this is, this, this is a sort of conundrum for a lot of people who enjoy what they do. It's like, well, when do you know when to stop doing that thing? That you enjoy what you're doing. I mean, you could just do it 24-7, right? And, and, and so I think that's one of the reasons, I mean, I came in with this mindset of, I'll just, you know, I'll just keep working. I'll just keep working. And usually that would be okay because 
I've been here for two years in the Netherlands and before I was in Japan. And in Japan, I had a support network. I had you know, colleagues, ex-colleagues. I had, I was in a big city. There wasn't COVID at the time. So even when I was working hard and I was stressed, I could really just sort of relax and, 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 and release. But then in my specific situation, when I moved to a new country, I didn't have a support network. Um, you know, I didn't have the business yet. It wasn't running. So I was really hustling. I didn't have sort of the activities I would normally have because I'm in a smaller city. And then to put the icing on the cake, COVID happened. And so it was this, this sort of perfect storm of, of uh, yeah, events and, and, and the situation that caused me to basically just overwork myself. And then I just couldn't, uh, basically at one point, I just couldn't like look at a computer screen. Like I was like physically, I would have a migraine and I would just fall asleep. <laughs> so it sounds kind of funny, but I would literally just, I would just pass out and it was on the couch, um, you know, for yeah, basically like three or four weeks. And then I decided to go back home to see family and, and that took, that was in June. So really it took me like three or four or five months before I started feeling normal again. And today, like what, s- seven months later, I can say like, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. And I've learned, yeah, I've learned my lesson in a way. So I would say that, yeah, if you're obviously if you're a freelancer or entrepreneur or or even if you're just a hard worker, then you know most of the most of the good ideas that you have don't come from working really hard. Like most of the good ideas you have come from taking a taking a break, whether that's in the shower or uh, on a, on a vacation or something. So just just from a pure productivity perspective, you could actually be more productive by not working every day. And that's just, that's just a fact. I mean, they've done studies on that. So, so I think it's good to think about your strategy and your philosophy of work instead of just doing things every day. And then if you, if you take some time to step, you know, step back and think about that, then yeah, you might be able to avoid some of the burnout or like, you know, high chronic stress situations that kill lots of people in Japan, uh, especially. Right. So so yeah, that was my experience. And I, I know a lot of people, there's going to be like the shockwave if there isn't already after COVID. Like a lot of people, I think, will experience this, unfortunately. Thank you so much for sharing that. I recently had another guest, Catherine Grodar. Uh, she has a company called Thrive Tokyo. And so if I you have Catherine very well. You do? Yeah. That's so and awesome. I know about her. I know. Yeah. Like, so she, she helps us with content. Oh, that's so great. She's the best. And if you haven't heard the podcast already, listeners, please go back and listen to it because she offers a lot of great advice about how to think about culture shock and then how Mm. to cope with it, especially if you are a bit of a high-powered individual, a bit of an ambitious individual. It can be very easy when you're thrown into a context that you're not comfortable with, such as moving abroad to a new country, Mm. to just compensate with something that gives you a feeling of control and agency, which will probably be your work. So if you don't find that balance, yeah, you can quickly end up in a situation that'll be very bad for you and your company. So it pays to be strategic about managing yourself. So yeah, shifting gears again a little bit. Can you tell us- I like shifting gears. Yeah, so much shifting gears. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about why you think coaching is so important? You've sure. built a whole company around it, so you must. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it depends on the type of coaching, but really, really simply, I mean, it's really 
rare that we get feedback, like really constructive, helpful feedback in an objective way. And it's also rare that people ask us really good questions. And if you think about some of the pivotal moments, maybe in your career or your life, um, or maybe on the podcast when, I don't know if the situation has happened, but maybe someone asked a question about how you're running the podcast or how you're doing X or Y, and then that made you sort of rethink some assumptions, right? And so it's usually the trigger point for us to, to, to start some change. And it works because people aren't, in this case, a coach isn't telling you what to do. A coach's role is really to ask you good questions and give you feedback, right? And so in my situation, what does that mean? So I have a coach. I have a coach myself that I meet with every two to three weeks and I'm going through fundraising right now. So I will talk to her about that and then just ask her like, Hey, what's your feedback on my pitch deck? And then she'll point out things that maybe my friends wouldn't point out because maybe they're too friendly and they don't want to hurt my feelings. I'm like, Hey, like this kind of sucks. Like you should probably consider this, 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 and this let's practice. Let's change it. Let's practice it together. And then, then she gives me more feedback and there's sort of this, this sort of sounding board that you have that, especially as a freelancer or an entrepreneur, you may not always get. And so depending on, yeah, your, your profession and everything, coaching can be really, really useful just to have another person that's especially not in your company. Cause obviously there could be some bias there. Maybe they, they know a little bit too much about the situation, right? It could be too emotional, but if a coach is just sort of this third person, this third party, just sort of listening to you. And like, they might point out things that you, uh, that you hadn't thought of. And that, that in itself is, is, is worth a couple hundred bucks an hour, at least uh, depending on what you're doing. So what would you say is the difference between a coach and a mentor? Yeah. The, the, the definitions get a bit, a bit tricky. Like there's coaches and mentors and advisors and managers, like leaders. I and mean, there's all, there's all these different uh, consultants as well. So a coach, like strictly speaking, is, is someone that is not going to give you the answers. And it's also someone that is going to be there to really guide you step by step. But they may not necessarily be in the position you want to be in. Like they may just have some experience in X or Y. They may be really good as a sounding board and a good leader but a mentor is someone you're probably going to look up to. Like you probably want to be in their position, right? So there's tons of mentorship programs in big tech companies or lots of companies, right? So like in Amazon and in many companies, they have like a leveling system, like level five, level six, level seven. And so there's mentorship programs where you get assigned one or two mentors and they help you sort of level up, right? Get to the next level and you, you meet with them once every, you know, two or three weeks or something. So, so, but those are people that are in the position you want to be in essentially. Right. And so that's the difference. The coaches is, is a uh, more of a, again, more of a sounding board, more of someone that could be in that position, but not necessarily. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for that distinction. And also if they're in the same industry, like you said before, they're not going to be the same objective third party that a coach would be. <laughs> so for I sure, can see how that sure. would be valuable. And also it's a relationship in some ways, it's a personal relationship, mentorship. So it's hard to get that same quality of feedback if they're worried about damaging that personal relationship that you've cultivated. So I can see how it'd be invaluable. Yeah, I also feel like it's the time spent and again, this people have different definitions, but 
I, I've got like a couple of mentors, but they're not, they're not spending time with me every week or two to like guide me through like, you know, step-by-step on certain things I need help with. They're more there for like moral support or like kind of updates and just sort of like their philosophy that they share with me. And so it's a little bit more high level, whereas the coaching is really like, Hey, let's go through my pitch deck and like, make sure I don't have any errors and then give me feedback on it. And then that is something I use like today. Uh, So it's a bit of a different mindset, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Both are useful. Yes, definitely. If you can have both, definitely do. I guess, could you tell us a little bit about what the current state of coaching is in Japan specifically versus other parts of the world right now? Sure. So we are mostly, so, so my, my business Karis, it's mostly looking at Europe and the U.S. as sort of the core markets, but we do have some customers in Japan, India, interestingly, but in, in Japan, the coaching market is still relatively nascent and most of it is around executive and leadership coaching. So if you look at big, like kind of foreign companies, like I don't know, like Daimler or something, they have Global HQ that wants to make sure people are getting the sort of learning and development that they need. And so there's a lot of executive coaches and leadership coaches that they'll hire locally. Most of them are like, yeah, most of them are non-Japanese. There's some Japanese also. And they they go and train, train and coach their employees on cross-cultural communication and that sort of thing. So that's quite common. And executive coaching, there's some big companies like Coach A, that are really targeting Japanese executives and, 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 and Japanese leadership. But if you look at more like one-on-one career coaching or life coaching, that's not really developed in Japan yet. It's still pretty new. There's a couple of platforms floating around that are trying to focus on that. But compared to the US and Europe, I mean, it's, it's still pretty, pretty new for Japan. Do you have any idea why that might be, or is it just the nature of having gotten started later? So it's just still in the young phase in Japan, or is there something cultural involved? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, yeah, Japan is, coaching itself is a relatively new industry. And I think that if you think about like what coaching is for a second, right? It's like you are going to an individual who is sort sort of an authority and they're giving you, they're giving you constructive feedback, and they're making you sort of feel uncomfortable at times. Uh, and all of this is sort of wrapped in this like personal growth and self development movement, right? So personal growth and self development, like it's a pretty new thing for Japan, right? If you look at the culture in the U.S., like people are like going to the gym to to get fit, and people are going to sign up for all these these courses online and trying to, you know, get different degrees and certifications. And in, in, in Japan, I feel like there's a lot less of this personal development and self-improvement movement. Maybe maybe that's cultural. Uh, maybe there's a little bit of, yeah, like um, maybe I'm just comparing it to, to the U.S. specifically because I think people are really gung-ho about self-improvement in general. Uh, so I think coaching comes hand in hand with that. Whereas in Japan, it's sort of like, oh, like, you know, we're, we're – we're part of the group. We're, we're, we're part of this company. Uh, we're going to, we're going to do this together. And to have one-on-one coaching may indicate that, you know, that person has a problem or something. So there's definitely, there's definitely some hesitation there, even from a corporate coaching side, but I think that is changing. 
Uh, but absolutely, yeah, there, there, there's probably something cultural going on. This is just me guessing, but I wonder if it has something to do with the idea of lifetime employment as well. Like you're not responsible for developing yourself. Your company sure. is responsible for developing you because that's where you're in theory supposed to be for your whole life. It doesn't happen as commonly as it used to, but yeah, that and the individualism versus collective responsibility, both probably yeah, I think big it's, you're, you're, you're totally right. I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I do think the lifetime employment thing is, is slowly dying out and, and, but there's still a sort of residual, like in, in the mindset of yeah, a lot of executives, right? And so, so coaching wouldn't necessarily, it's not necessarily as tangible as well. It's like, what is the result like today or tomorrow? Like you can't quite measure it. It's, it's, it's difficult to measure. So I, I think if you're looking at performance and cost efficiency, then yeah, it's, it's a little bit harder to justify it sometimes. So then a theme I've noticed in some of your posts and correct me if I'm making assumptions, um, it seems like you focused on habits rather than chasing after specific definable results. Um, more mm -hmm. specifically, what I would, what people call smart goals, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant time-bound goals. Could you, if I'm right about that, could you please tell us why that is? Mm. Right. Yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. You, fa you found that. That was something I wrote on my blog somewhere. I think I wrote a couple of posts on that. Uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, the idea is, is simply that if you set a goal right now, then depending on how big that goal is, it may be really hard to achieve and you sort of give up before you really even try. Uh, and this is the story of like New Year's resolutions and, and just like aiming too high, right? So <clears throat> it's a lot easier, for example, like if I started running, if I just started running, like I've never run a marathon before, I've never run a half marathon, I could, I could have this like really specific goal, of like I want to run a marathon in, in three months and, you know, I might break my ankle or something, but whatever, I'm going to do it. That's, that's one way to go about it. I think a more sustainable way could be just to say, hey, like, I will eventually like do a marathon or something later on. But for now, I just want to get in the habit of like getting up and running and then just see how that goes. And that's like a lot less pressure, <laughs> right? It's just like, oh, I'm just going to, yeah, just going to go run like three times a week, whatever, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. You don't have to put a time limit on it or a time minimum uh, necessarily, just, just go outside and run. And then like with anything that you get started after a few days or a few weeks, it's just like a lot easier to go from there. Right. So after I've been running for two months or three months consistently, I start getting more energy. I start getting more motivated and then I can say, okay, wow. Like I just ran 10 K today. Like I could probably run 20. Let me sign up for my first half marathon. And then you can start setting the goals. So it's not that you shouldn't set goals. Obviously, I, I think that, you know, goal setting is super important and it should be specific and actionable and all that. Uh, but usually, unless you've, unless you're like really a pro and you've done it before or you, you're getting close to doing that thing you want to do, it could be a better idea just to like develop some sort of routine or system before you set these sort of very ambitious goals, if that sort of makes sense. That definitely makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm just curious if it has more to do with personality or if it's pretty universal. Because obviously there's people mm. out there who are like, set goals, grind until you hit them, rinse and repeat. But I'm definitely not one of those people. So yeah, smart goals. To totally, yeah. yeah. Sitting down 
and just deciding, okay, this is my smart goal has never been something that's worked very well for me personally. It's always been habits that have gotten me to the places I want to go. So probably is a little it ha habits in terms of like exercise or like what kind of, what kind of things? Yeah. Habits in terms of exercise, learning habits. I can't really think of anything else off the top of my head. So like language learning? Or? Yeah. Language learning as well has been a big one. So like rather than, so what's an example there? Like rather than studying for a specific test, you're just mm -hmm. sort of yeah. studying what you like. So what I do when I'm studying Japanese is I try to put the most essential or I guess the most impactful thing first and then things that I enjoy afterwards. So I have to get through that hard or unsavory thing like going through a bunch of flashcards before I can get to reading articles that I think are interesting. So mm. that sort of thing. Make, like making it easier on yourself to, uh, to reach those goals instead of just thinking, no, I have to do the most efficient thing in order to reach my goal. It's like, I would rather yeah. play with my own nature to figure out how to get myself to put in the work. Yeah, there, there's, the, there's a good book. I just read it. I think it's, it's not the original. There, there's a, the original, I think, is just called Infinite Games. And this newer version is called Finite and Infinite Games. And it sort of makes a distinction between like, what is a finite game? Well, a finite game is like a game of soccer or, or tennis or something like, you know, we know that you're getting to a certain score and there's like a time limit and you can, you can really operate with that mindset of, of like hitting a really specific target and improve, like get better at that and actually achieve that. And then there's infinite games and infinite games are like relationships. Like you don't sort of think about, okay, how can I achieve the most, uh, you know, out of this relationship and like, when will it end? Like, you're not really, you shouldn't be thinking like that. Right. And uh, careers are another infinite game. It's like, you know, maybe I'm, I'm a writer and then I'm an entrepreneur and then I do something else. And maybe I become a baker, like whatever. I don't know what I'm going to do in 10, 20 years. So if you keep thinking about like, oh, I've made it, like I've, I've succeeded at business. It's like a really silly thing to say, right? It's like, I've succeeded at business. You can't really, you know, you can maybe hit certain financial targets and personal goals, but it's sort of an ongoing infinite type game. And I think that's another way it's kind of connected to this conversation about habits and goals where like, I, I, I always want to be running. I always want to be doing some exercise uh, regardless of whether I have a specific target around that. I just want to, have this system of eating healthy and exercising and that doesn't have to stop until I can't actually physically do that anymore. So. Well, I think that's such a great distinction. I'll have to pick up that book. So just for an example, passing JOPT1 is a finite game, a finite game and then yeah. the infinite game would be developing your Japanese skills because yeah, unfortunately exactly. there's no end to that. So no, fortunately or unfortunately. You can't just say, like, oh, I've made it. Like, I am like Mr. or Mrs. Japan. Like, what, what does that even mean, right? Obviously, you can get really good in, in doing presentations and there's like specific events, but there's always going to be something you can learn. So can you please share with us an example of a communication breakdown that you've experienced due to culture? Yeah. So I was thinking there's a lot. I mean, I was a recruiter, <laughs> right? So I was helping mostly Japanese job seekers in Tokyo look for jobs in tech companies. Some of them were startups, 
Some of them were bigger companies, but with smaller operations in Japan because they're just entering the market. Some of them were just like big companies like Amazon. And there were so many situations, like I could give you a, a list of them, of where culture, yeah, there, there was some cultural gap <laughs> between me and the job seeker or between the client and, you know, in headquarters and then the Japanese job seeker. So one, one that comes to mind, which it's cultural, not necessarily cultural, but pretty cultural, is the multiple times where I would get a job offer for a, a candidate. And, you know, we got the offer like, yeah, I'll, I'll accept it. And all is good. And then two days later, they come back and say, oh, sorry, Misha, I can't accept this offer. And it's like, well, what happened between, <laughs> between like your excitement and, and uh, yesterday? Well, what happened at least a couple of times was for more junior, like younger, yeah, younger people who don't have experience changing their jobs. Well, first of all, like it's not a very liquid job market as we were just talking about with lifetime employment, like oftentimes yeah, you're at your company for a few years or many years. And this whole process of a job search is actually quite formal in Japan. And I think that is cultural. And, and so with this situation, what would happen is a, a candidate would go to his boss and say, hey, Tanaka-san, like I am resigning from the company. I found a different offer. And then normally in America, I'd be like, okay, we're done. I put in your two weeks notice. In this case, it was like, no, you can't quit. We won't let you. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> and so it's like, they come back to me like, hey, my boss said no. It's like, it doesn't matter if your boss said no. And, and so partly this was my lack of experience as a recruiter, not knowing that this would happen. And in the future, obviously you can start preparing candidates like, hey, like, how are you going to tell your boss? Like, okay, what if he says no? What is your response going to be? And then you can sort of prepare people for these uncomfortable conversations. Uh, but if you don't, uh, you'll, you'll be in these weird situations where, yeah, you get you get the social pressure essentially from from the company, which is yeah, their family essentially. And then you know, maybe they end up leaving anyways in a few months, right? Because because they're still unhappy in the job. So it's sort of an unfortunate situation. But it, it reminds me of there's a service I don't remember the name. I'll have to look it up. But there's a service in Japan that costs like. 25, you know what I'm talking about? It's like 25,000 yen or 50,000 yen who will resign on your behalf, right? Because it's so stressful. So they will, I guess they'll just like write the resignation letter or something and send it to your boss. And uh, the fact that they're doing well, is, you know, is, is sort of a testament to this, this cultural like nuance of, of careers and resignations in Japan and, and how much pressure and stress there is around that. So I think that that's happened multiple times and, what else? Yeah, there's times when, you know, the the uh, husband has to negotiate with the wife, and so you have to get the wife involved in the, in the job offer negotiation. And that's, I don't know if that's as common in the U.S. I mean, I'm sure, obviously, they're communicating, the family's communicating about this, but there would be a lot of pushback from the wife or the husband, depending on the situation. Um, and and so you'd also get this, like, oh, sorry, I can't accept the offer. Wife said no. It's like, like. Okay, <laughs> can we do anything about that? Like, <laughs> what, is your, what, what are her concerns, right? So all these things are sort of surprising, I think, to employers when they try and hire in Japan. It, it makes it a little bit trickier, uh, which is why recruitment is such a big industry still and why the recruitment fees are so high in Japan compared to the rest of the world where 
you're paying 30 to 35% or more of a candidate's yearly salary to, to, to find that person versus the US and the UK, which is like 15, 20% at most. So this is going back a little bit or actually sure. a lot. So sorry about that. No, but okay. I was just wondering, is recruitment something that you would recommend to pretty much everyone to at least try or does it really only suit certain personalities? I guess, do you mm. think that recruitment is something that people should try for the skills that you develop or do you think it's really not suitable for everyone? I don't think it's suitable for everyone. I have seen and hired or tried to hire lots of people when I was working and some of them didn't work out, different reasons, but there is something about the attitude and tenacity that you bring to the job where if you're like super detail oriented and can't just sort of like move on, like everything has to be perfect, then that might, might be challenging because it is essentially a sales job, right? And, and, and so there's a lot of people you speak to who you can't help and you sort of have to move on and, and sort of keep going. And so for some people, the speed can be a little bit intimidating and they just can't sort of keep up with the pace of the job. Not to say that can't be learned. I mean, I think that there's obviously a lot of skills that I learned and a lot of skills that you would learn in the job the first few months, especially larger recruitment firms have training programs that will help you with all of that. But there is sort of this baseline sort of like willingness to just be wrong and to be a little bit embarrassed and to work really hard for the first few months. And if you're willing to do that, then I think, um, yeah, I, I, I think you can be really successful, but definitely not for everyone. And I think the best way to find out if, I mean, there's no like personality test you can take to find out if you're a fit. I think it's just a matter of talking to these companies, sending in your application and realizing that there are different types of recruitment jobs, right? Like there's, um, you know, usually you start out as a sourcing manager where you're actually just talking to the job seekers and that requires a lot of research and analysis and still phone calls and that sort of thing, but it's not, it's not as salesy. And then a recruiter is actually doing that job plus talking to clients and preparing job seekers for interviews. And that requires a lot more time management skills and sort of client facing ability. So you don't necessarily have to do this recruitment job, Like there's a lot of people who stay in the sourcing role and they're very good at it. So I would, I would consider that as another option but really what I was saying is like, yeah, just go talk to these companies, like apply to some recruitment companies. Maybe they like your resume, maybe they like your style. And then you can sort of feel from the interview, like, oh, I, I really, yeah, I really like these guys. I can work with them. Or my boss is really like, you know, mo- you know, motivating and seems like you'd support me. So if all these things sort of, you know, check the list, then yeah, you can definitely give it a go. Awesome. Thank you for that um, advice and that kind of dissection of what it takes to succeed as a recruiter. I think that's really important. So if you were chatting with somebody who was going to Japan for business and you really only had time to teach them one thing about the country or culture ahead of time, I guess other than getting your book, what, what would you try to teach them about Japan before they got on the plane? Yeah, so my, self, my, my shameless self-promotion, just like, just get the book. No, um, I think, there, there, I mean, there's a ton, ton of stuff in the book that might pop out depending on why are you going to Japan, right? I want to know why this person is, is going there. Um, but there's there's a lot of counterintuitive stuff. And I think maybe the one thing I would pick just to sort of get your mind thinking about like other possibilities is 
you don't have to drink alcohol to be successful. And, and this is something that my friend Benny, who I interviewed, uh, you know, he's never drank alcohol in his life. And he sold two businesses in Japan and speaks like perfect Japanese and, you know, went to Japanese school for a year. And he, yeah, he's just like, look, there's a, there's a bunch of sort of stereotypes that you would think like, you can't do this in Japan. Like, oh, you have to, you have to drink or you have to have a Japanese person on your team in order to be successful. There's all these sort of assumptions, which may not necessarily be true. And so I would say the first one is like, yeah, you don't have to drink. Like you can do lunch meetings, right? You can do lunch meetings or you can just tell them, Hey, I don't drink. You know, they probably won't ask why, like, we'll assume you have an allergy or something. So, uh, and you, and yeah, if you, if you really don't drink, that's helpful. And if you really prefer not to drink, because you were jet lagged or you've just been drinking already two days in a row, then don't feel the, the pressure or the need to do that just because you're in a business meeting or whatever. Right. Yeah. You're allowed to set boundaries. You just have to be clear about them. <laughs> you can I definitely guess. set boundaries. Yeah. I, like that, That's the thing with culture. It's like, Oh, I have to abide by all of these like cultural norms. It's like, well, it doesn't mean you have to do everything. And it doesn't mean you have to give up your, you know, your own principles. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I'm really excited to share it with the audience as well. But is there anything that you feel like we didn't get to talk about? Anything else you want to share? Well, uh, no, I think we covered a lot. I, I enjoyed it as well. And I would say, yeah, I would invite everyone to listen to your podcast, of course, like they're already listening to it, if they're listening to this. But there's a lot of people you've interviewed and the information coming out of Japan is often not really up to date. If you're just like reading articles online, or if you're on these Japanese websites that are sort of, you know, they're in Japanese or they're just hard to read because of, of their interface, interviewing people like the guy, you, the guy you met uh, from, from Kobe uh, talking about startups and, and the new regulations there, like that's really up to date information. Like, I didn't know that. Uh, until I listened to it today. So I would definitely encourage people to, to check out all these different resources, including your podcast. And uh, it, it's definitely getting a lot easier to get to Japan just from everything that's going on. So I think for anyone that is, uh, yeah, trying to, trying to get to Tokyo or somewhere else in Japan, now is, uh, well, not right now, now, but now is a good time to start thinking about it. And, and in the next few months, I think things will open up, hopefully, yeah, we are recording yeah. in March, the very beginning of March 2020, 2021. So things are definitely getting better, but we still have yeah. a ways to go from where we are right now. But yeah, cool. again, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to check out the links in the description of the episode to learn more about Misha and his startups activities. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the messages and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe and leave a rating and review if you enjoy the podcast. And feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. Also, be sure to reach out if you would like to contribute as a guest on the podcast to share your own cultural insights into doing business in Japan. If you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find a link to do so in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata gondo.